Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. We have multiple updates to the 2024 presidential elections, including former President Trump's Iowa strategy and a new memo by President Biden's campaign on the threat it says Trump poses to democracy. House Republicans say there's no doubt President Biden was complicit in a foreign influence peddling scheme. We bring you the details of their report on Biden's emails. New York City Mayor Eric Adams faces a lawsuit. Plaintiffs argue that planned cuts to the city's public schools are illegal. In the wake of the tragic shooting yesterday in Prague, a national day of mourning to honor the victims. We hear from the Czech president. Holiday travelers wanting to cross the English Channel find themselves in a bit of a pickle after an unexpected strike. And Christmas is just around the corner. How do people from different cultures celebrate the big day? And what are the most unique traditions? This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Some updates on the 2024 presidential election. Starting with former President Trump's so-called blitz strategy in Iowa. On January 5th, Trump is scheduled to make back-to-back -back appearances in Northern Iowa. One at 4 p.m. at Christian College near the state's western border. Then at 7.30, he's scheduled to make remarks about 150 miles northeast at the North Iowa Event Center. The two small town events are scheduled just 10 days before the first in the nation Iowa caucuses. Behind the scenes in Iowa, Trump is also benefiting from legions of volunteers who have been working to build relationships with voters. Trump is hoping for a big win in Iowa. He says this could compel other GOP candidates to drop out of the race, which he says would consolidate donors' contributions to a common cause beating President Biden. GOP presidential candidate Chris Christie will not be on Maine's primary ballot on March 5th. The Maine Superior Court on Thursday rejected the appeal from the former New Jersey governor. This was after hearing oral arguments the day before. Christie did not meet the December 1st deadline to submit the required 2,000 signatures from registered voters in Maine. The state's director of elections said Christie's petition had only 844 certified signatures. Authorities have indicted a new New Hampshire man after he sent threatening text messages to three presidential candidates. These reportedly include Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie. 30-year-old Tyler Anderson has now been charged with three counts of transmitting interstate threats. He faces up to five years in prison if convicted. The Biden campaign released a year-end memo calling Trump a threat to democracy. This comes just days after Trump was removed from the Colorado 2024 ballot for allegedly inciting an insurrection. That's even though Trump was never found guilty of or even charged with this crime. The memo states that Trump undermines America's democratic institutions and warns voters about the threat Trump allegedly poses. And Democratic presidential candidate Dean Phillips released a new campaign ad. It criticizes Biden for wanting to move Democrats' first primary election away from New Hampshire. For over a century, New Hampshire has held the first in the nation primary. And Granite Staters have faithfully carried out that grave responsibility, propelling the candidacies of some and ending the candidacies of others. Now, Joe Biden has ordered New Hampshire to step aside. That's not the New Hampshire way. 
Biden is supporting a bid to hold Democrats' first primaries in South Carolina instead. New Hampshire officials previously said they won't follow the request by the Democratic National Committee to let go of their first state privilege. The New Hampshire Secretary of State po pointed out that today's society is quick to eliminate traditions and ignore them. A new, a new analysis found that Michigan and Nevada are shifting support toward Republicans. The Cook Political Report states that President Biden's standing there has diminished. The report says a number of key issues are hampering Biden's re-election hopes. For example, the ongoing Israel-Hamas conflict. This has been an especially divisive issue in Michigan. The state is home to the largest share of Arab Americans in the country. In Nevada, the report found that Biden is losing standing with Latino voters, especially younger ones. And to round up election headlines, the No Labels organization is floating the idea of a coalition government. That's if no candidate reaches the 270 electoral college votes necessary to win the White House. The scenario would apply if the third party ticket wins electoral votes and blocks a major party nominee from winning the presidency outright. As the waves of people crossing the southern border continues to surge, we hear from the sheriff of a county neighboring Eagle Pass, Texas. It's the fastest route between San Antonio and Mexico, often referred to as La Puerta de Mexico, or Mexico's door. Kinney County Sheriff Brad Coe was just in Eagle Pass and joins us now to offer his insights. Sheriff, welcome. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? Uh, just living the dream. Absolutely. Now, I just want to check in with you. You've just been down to Eagle Pass, Texas. What's the situation there? Oh, it's, it's total chaos. Uh, when I was down there the other day, they had just waiting to be transported someplace to be processed. They had 3,500 in custody. And I think for the total of the day was 4,400, which is more people than I have in my entire county. Wow, that's incredible. Um, so what's your impression of the, the feel on the ground there? Well, they're they're calling. It's, it's to the point where Border Patrol is calling my agency to go down there and assist with security because there's so many people there. If something breaks out, there's nothing stopping them. So somebody's got to get control of this, and Congress had better do it as soon as possible. Now, so where? How are people being processed there? Where do they go? Well, they they cross the river and they they've got a temporary holding facility there under the port of entry in Eagle Pass. From there, they're taken to a facility that they refer to it as the Firefly that has a capacity of about 2,500 to maybe 3,000 people that they can get processed hopefully within a 24 to 72 hour period. But the other day, the Firefly, from what my understanding, was at max capacity, about 35, almost 4,000 people, plus another 4,000 people on the ground waiting to be transferred there to be processed. So the system is broken and it needs to be fixed quickly. Now, Biden is sending Blinken and Mayorkas to Mexico to try and curb illegal border crossings. What do you expect to come of that and why? Absolutely nothing. They've done nothing to, to, to prevent this. They've done nothing to stop this. Mayorkas even went down to Panama to, we thought, to go down there and talk and see how they can divert this. But all he did was make an appearance and say, hey, we're here to help. And that was about it. On a similar attack, you know, House Speaker Mike Johnson is pushing Biden to take executive action on the border. What kind of action do you think would be effective and what do you expect Biden to do? Well, first of all, I don't really expect Biden to do much, but what needs to be done is the 
powers that be need to say, okay, we're going to enforce immigration law. The laws are on the books. Let's process them. Let's prosecute them. If they're making an illegal entry, let's have some type of consequences versus. All right. It looks like we, oh, uh, and you're back, yeah. Sheriff. I'm back. Continue. <laughs> uh, but basically what's ha happening is they're catching these people. They're cutting them loose. We're seeing documents where they won't have a court date until, uh, 2030 2031 that's six seven years down the road and if they continue to do that we'll never be able to get control of that border again now looking more at closely at the border they're notoriously run by cartels on the mexican side who are these cartel members well the cartels are operating on both sides of the, of the river they're they're in every major city in the country so that's where their networking is and they're or just basically the, the Mexican version of the, the old mafia days back in, you know, Al Capone's time. And why hasn't the U.S. designated these cartels as terrorists, considering the kind of damage that they're wrecking on the country? Well, one of the reasons is if the government actually declares them a terrorist organization, it opens up the entire country of Mexico for political asylum. So that's one thing that has to be addressed is how do we circumvent this without giving amnesty to the entire country. All right. Thank you so much for your insights. Kinney County Sheriff Brad Coe, great to speak with you. Thank you all. Y'all take care. And you. Next up, House Republicans say there's no doubt that President Biden was complicit in his son's global influence peddling scheme. They released new records showing email exchanges between the then vice president and his son's business associates. Biden allegedly sent and received emails with Eric Schwerin over 300 times during his time as vice president. Republicans say Schwerin was in charge of structuring shell companies to launder money around the world. Republicans concluded their report by alleging that President Biden's complicity in his son's business dealings is dangerous abuse of his office. A White House spokesperson didn't directly comment on the allegations, but House Democrats say that Schwerin worked as Biden's financial advisor from 2009 to 2017 and helped him file his tax returns. Coming up, a former Chicago alderman is convicted on 13 corruption charges. Prosecutors said he used his political clout to pressure people into hiring his law firm. And millions of student loan borrowers are still not making payments, even months after payments resumed. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. A major explosion in Glenville, New York last night after a truck carrying natural gas crashed into a bridge. Police say the trailer contained individual containers of compressed natural gas. Witnesses reported flames reaching 200 feet into the air. The driver reportedly told police he did not see the low bridge warnings until it was too late. He was burned in the crash and was flown to a hospital near New York City. Former Chicago Alderman Ed Burke was convicted on 13 corruption charges yesterday. The longest serving city council member in Chicago's history abused his power to win private law business from developers. The jury deliberated for 23 hours over four days before returning its verdict. 38 witnesses testified. 
The jury acquitted Burke on one count of conspiracy. Prosecutors said Burke used his political clout to pressure people into hiring his private property tax law firm. Defense attorney Joe Duffy said prosecutors presented a, quote, murky case. Burke left the Dirksen Federal Courthouse without comment. His longtime aide, Peter Andrews, was acquitted of all charges against him. He was accused of being Burke's accomplice. Sentencing is scheduled for June 19th. And New York City's Teachers Union is suing to block planned cuts to the city's public schools. The group says Mayor Eric Adams' proposed budget reductions would weaken key education initiatives. Adams has argued that slashing key spending is necessary to offset the rising costs of New York's migrant crisis. The cuts would amount to $550 million. The United Federation of Teachers filed a lawsuit in state court Thursday. The union accuses the mayor of exaggerating the city's fiscal woes. A state law prevents New York City from reducing school spending unless overall revenue declines. Adams has faced growing fallout over a multi-billion dollar budget cut announced last month. The mayor's polls numbers have dropped to the lowest point since taking office. A man in Queens, New York, has been arraigned on a 140-count indictment. He's accused of orchestrating an extensive voter fraud scheme during the 2022 Democratic primary election. Abdul Rahman allegedly submitted 20 fraudulent absentee ballot applications in August of 2022. His charges include illegal voting, falsifying business records, and criminal possession of a forced instrument. The case came to light when another man was trying to vote in person and discovered that an absentee ballot had already been requested in his name. He was unable to cast the vote for the preferred candidate his own. Rahman reportedly submitted 118 absentee ballot applications. 32 were approved. Rahman is set to return to court on January 30th. He could face a seven-year prison sentence. Three Tacoma, Washington police officers were acquitted yesterday in the killing of an unarmed man in 2020. Witnesses testified that Manuel Ellis was shocked with a stun gun and forcefully restrained. Video footage showed one officer restraining Ellis by the neck as another fired a taser into his chest. The officers say they stopped Ellis because he was approaching a car turning at an intersection. They said his behavior was violent and that he attacked them. Police said they had no choice but to respond forcefully. Defense lawyers argued that Ellis died due to his drug use and a heart condition. Ellis had methamphetamine in his system at the time of his death. Prosecution witnesses testified that the officers were the aggressors and attacked Ellis unprovoked while he was standing on the sidewalk. The medical examiner ruled his death a homicide caused by oxygen deprivation. And a video captured Ellis telling officers he couldn't breathe. And holiday travel season is already underway. Airlines are expecting millions of passengers. Are airlines on track with timely service? Let's hear what travelers are reporting so far. Holiday travel is already in hectic full swing. Airlines feel confident they can handle the crowds. Last year's holiday flight debacle is still fresh in many people's minds. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says the government will be holding airlines accountable to operate smoothly and treat passengers well amid disruptions. AAA forecasts over 100 million Americans will travel 50 miles or more from home between tomorrow and New Year's Day. What are airline passengers saying so far? Flight's been good, uh, real consistent, a little bit of turbulence on that first flight coming in. 
Um, travel hasn't been too bad. Uh, nothing like what we were expecting. Definitely better than last year for sure. Honestly, it was great. I flew standby, which the week of holiday, you know, is tricky to do. And I made it on the second try. So I'm feeling really lucky. feel like Santa's real. He's good. He's out there. But why are many New Yorkers and other travelers choosing to travel by train instead? Cheaper. Significantly cheaper. Okay, it's fast and then uh, you have time to relax. With millions of holiday travelers in transit, where are they going? Where do their journeys begin? I just landed from New York and I'm here visiting my family who live about like four hours south of here. I'm coming back for Christmas. I was just living in Santiago, Chile for the past year and a half. Vegas is the closest that we can get to see your city. That's where we're headed. Back to Utah, visit family and enjoy the holidays. While the weather remains an unknown factor, it seems like holiday travelers can at least expect a smoother experience than last year. Coming up, a Ukrainian town battered by war is facing a harsh winter. Despite the snow and plummeting temperatures, some residents say they don't want to leave. And winter in Russia is just as cold, and a traditional craft is helping locals get through the snowy days. We'll have the details soon when we return. And now some short headlines from Europe. We begin with an update on the deadly shooting in the Czech Republic. The Czech government declared Saturday a national day of mourning to honor the victims of Thursday's mass shooting. Police say a student killed 14 people at a university in Prague before turning the gun on himself. 20 people were also injured in the attack. The bloodshed took place in the philosophy department building of Charles University. Three of those wounded were foreigners, two from the United Arab Emirates and one from the Netherlands. Czech President Peter Pavel addressed the nation. Firstly, I would like to express great sadness and powerless anger over this absolutely senseless loss of this many young lives. I want to express my deepest condolences to all the bereaved and wish for everyone who was present there during this tragic incident, the most tragic incident of this kind in the history of the Czech Republic, to recover quickly from their wounds and with as few consequences as possible. A summit between Hungary and Ukraine. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban said on Thursday that he accepted an invitation from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to hold a meeting in the future. It would be the first meeting between the two leaders since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Orban says Zelensky requested a discussion on Ukraine's bid to join the European Union. It's a bid that Orban opposes. Relations between the two leaders have been strained as Hungary has repeatedly blocked EU efforts to provide financial aid to Ukraine. Orban is one of the only EU leaders who hasn't made an official trip to Ukraine. Supporting Ukraine is not an inappropriate objective. However, I would not like it to happen in such a way that we put money into the EU budget and we notice that the money intended for Hungary is being spent on aid to Ukraine because we are afraid that our money, which is withheld, will end up in Ukraine. Because the moment can come when we should get our money, and then we might be told that the pocket is empty. This must be avoided at all costs. So support for Ukraine cannot be at the expense of Hungarians. 
Russia said on Thursday it has established comprehensive defense cooperation with North Korea and that the country will also continue its strategic partnerships with India and China. The U.S. and allies have voiced concerns that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un could provide weapons and ammunition to Russia and help replace stocks used in its war in Ukraine. South Korean lawmakers said Russia helped Pyongyang launch, launch a spy satellite a month ago. The U.S. has said Russia may be helping North Korea to evade U.N. sanctions prohibiting cooperation with Pyongyang. The Kremlin said the, the allegation was, quote, absolutely unfounded. The United States and Denmark signed a defense cooperation agreement on Thursday. That follows similar agreements with Norway, Sweden and Finland to bolster European security. The 10-year agreement allows U.S. troops and military equipment to be based on Danish soil. Negotiations on the agreement began in February last year and will become effective when lawmakers pass necessary bills. Blinken hailed the bilateral agreement with Denmark. He said Denmark continues to play a leading role in ensuring Russia's war on Ukraine remains what he called a strategic failure. A strike put holiday traffic in a jam on Thursday. French workers at Eurotunnel had an unexpected walkout. It, inter it interrupted traffic and threatened the Christmas holiday plans of many travelers. Eurotunnel is the undersea link between Britain and continental Europe. Travelers were stranded at the high-speed train terminal in London. The protest over bonus pay caused massive disruptions on the busy London-Paris route. Eurotunnel unions later ended their strike and traffic resumed Thursday night. And next, we turn our attention to Lehman, a Ukrainian city that has lived through the Russian invasion. Residents there are struggling with devastated infrastructure and plummeting temperatures and as winter sets in. Here's more. In the devastated town of Lehman, eastern Ukraine, Hanadi Batsak collects the firewood volunteers gather and leave by the road. The few remaining residents are preparing for a harsh winter. It's more than a year since Ukrainian forces drove out Russian occupying troops. About 90% of Liman's infrastructure has been destroyed, and burning wood is how most people stay warm. The electricity is hopeless. There is no gas. The electricity comes and goes. It doesn't depend on people. It depends on the weather. Liman is only about nine miles from the front line. It lies just north of Ukraine's coal and steel heartland, where fighting has been underway for nearly a decade, since proxy forces aided by Moscow rose up. Nearly 20,000 people lived in Liman before Russia invaded Ukraine last year and occupied the town from May to October. About a quarter of the population remains, mostly older people. Volodymyr Kachenko left but ended up returning. Why leave? I have lived here and left for Dnipro. And now I am home within my own walls and it's easier to breathe and live. Danger is never far away. In July, a barrage of Russian rockets slammed into the town centre, killing nine people. The mayor told Reuters Liman cannot be rebuilt while fighting continues nearby. The December is very snowy in Russia, and traditional thick felt boots are high in demand. Russians are trying to grab a pair of the reliable winter footwear. Even people living in cities are opting for the time-tested option. Here's more on that story. Velenki are thick felt boots, traditionally worn by the Russians in freezing weather. 
They are made with one piece of felt and don't have a single stitch in it. How good do Valenki sell? It depends on weather conditions. Just as it begins snowing, the buyers start marching to our shop. So naturally, the sales have increased. Sometimes people come, but the size they need has already been sold out. At one of the largest Valenki factories in Russia, workers use special equipment nicknamed the crocodile to get the giant Valenki into shape. The Valenki are thrown into a hole in the floor to a milling machine, where they will be washed and boiled. While our Valenki wait till they are put on a shoot tree, they cool down and become stiff. To make them soft and pliant, we heat them in a special barrel. They warm up for about 40 minutes and become like hot pies, so they become easy to put on a metal shoot tree. After that, rubber soles are added. Workers will then use machinery to make the boots smooth. We try to refresh the looks of the footwear we produce, make it more modern. We work with its shape, we decorate it, and we protect it from water using various kinds of soles. We have our own unique niche, inexpensive, warm, quality footwear. It's popular, and we hope that the demand for it remains in the future. The director said the demand for the felted footwear has been rather stable in recent years and they produce around 400,000 pairs annually. They are warm and comfortable to walk in. The only thing, you need to pick ones for your size. If you buy a size too small, the foot goes in just fine, but they become hard to take off the bridge of the foot. This December has been excessively snowy in central Russia, even compared to the usual standards. Moscow has been swept by record-setting blizzards twice already this winter. Millions of student loan borrowers aren't paying their bills. The average monthly bill hovers between $200 and $300 per person. This as consumers continue to face sky-high interest rates and inflation, which has rapidly eroded their purchasing power. NTD business host Don Ma has more. And now joining us here is Derek Giorgino, risk consultant in the greater LA area and NTD contributor. So Derek, it seems like uh, millions of student loan borrowers are still not paying back uh, payments. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, I think it was back in June, uh, estimated that one in five or 20% of, of students with federal student loans had certain risk factors that were going to lead to them potentially not being able to make a payment at the end of the three-year student loan reprieve. Well, the data that just came out shows it's actually 40%, Don. So first payments came due in October and 40%, nearly half of borrowers uh, did not make their first payment. And what do you think it's contributing to this? Because it's been months now that student loans have resumed. Yeah, well, <laughs> in terms of root causes, I think there's unfortunately something rotten uh, in the way that our uh, society handles its personal finance habits, particularly millennials aged 30 to 39, which the data shows is shouldering an immense amount of credit card debt and student loans. I think we need to change our society's attitude about the purpose and value of a college education. It's not just an experience, it's meant to develop yourself uh, and 
really grow yourself into the professional world. Really, people should look at a college experience as something that should yield a return on investment, not just yield an experience. And unfortunately, that's resulting in people short shouldering up to a quarter million dollars in debt in order to uh, you know, partake in fields of study that just don't yield a return on that investment. So 40%, uh, what kind of number are we looking at here? Paint us a real world picture. Yeah, it's about 9 million borrowers, okay, out of the 22 million or so that have taken federal student loans who have not made the first payment due now in October. And mind you, there was a three-year reprieve on these student loan dons. There's really no excuse to not have buttoned up your personal finances a little bit and be prepared to make that first payment come October here. Something a little, uh, another piece of bad news for these borrowers is that the interest actually started accruing again in September, one month earlier. So these folks, much like our government, might I add, are going to struggle keeping up with the interest alone on the principle of their debt, especially with higher interest rates and so forth. Well, all right. Thank you very much today, Derek. Happy holidays. Thanks for coming on. You as well, Don. Thank you. Coming up, Christmas is just around the corner. How do people from different cultures celebrate the big day? And what are the most unique traditions? And tensions are high in Spain as the country watches the drawing of the annual Christmas lottery. Find out how much the winners can get more shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Spain is drawing the numbers for its annual Christmas lottery today. The tradition of the lottery dates back over 200 years to 1812. The draw is televised live and captures the attention of most of the country every year on December 22nd. Many dressed up in costumes to watch the draw. In total, the lottery spreads out over $3 billion in prizes across Spain. The top prize is worth over $400,000 and multiple tickets can win the sum. There are also several prizes as low as $1,000. A ticket costs just over $20. It's common for relatives, co-workers, friends, and others to buy tickets together. On average, each Spaniard spends over $70 on the Christmas lottery each year. And for kids, there's almost nothing more exciting than opening presents on Christmas morning. From teddy bears to Barbie, children's toys have long surprised the little ones under the tree. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the hottest items from last century to today. This 1920s toy fair would be a fantasy world for many youngsters. A singing bird or a crying doll had never been seen before. Games which rely on imagination have always been popular. Would you like some cake? Yes. The toy tea party allowed kids to pretend like they were sophisticated adults. During both world wars, dolls took on roles of soldiers and field nurses. Model planes became Spitfires and toy tanks rolled through European battlefields. Sometimes the simplest and cheapest toys become the hottest new item. The yo-yo fascinated kids worldwide. By the 1960s, the toy industry exploded. 
Everything from puppets to dolls were so lifelike they could be mistaken for the real thing. Some moved and others talked. Electronic toys also appeared, like this winding toy race car track. Action figures are still popular today. They came dressed in military uniforms and came with scenery for their adventures. Television and films began to create huge demand for toys based on popular characters. As time passed, some toys were as popular with adults as they were with children. Smartphones have almost infinite applications, but today most children see an endless supply of fun games. Few toy makers a century ago could have predicted what today's toys would be like. One toy which has endured for decades is Barbie, more popular now thanks to the Barbie movie. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Chicago's Christmas-themed trains are one of the country's most unique festivities. Santa Claus and his reindeer get passengers to their destinations with a dose of Christmas cheer. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on Santa's other sleigh. Over 60,000 festive lights adorn these train cars. Christmas illustrations and candy cane striped handrails cover the entire train. It's not your normal train. As you can see, it's beautiful, nicely decorated. And of course, you got elf sugar and some wonderful more elves. And, you know, we just like to bring joy and holiday cheer to everyone. Welcome aboard this red line holiday train. The seats are a bright holiday red and green. Even the train's advertisements are all Christmas themed. It's so joyful, you know, in today's world, there's all type of things going on and we never know what a person is going through. So when they get on the train and we interact with them, you'd be surprised at how many days we make. You'd be surprised how many frowns we turn into smiles. Santa Claus rides alongside passengers in his sleigh, an open-air car in the middle of the train. I think it's really nice. I really love the fact that they give out the candy canes and they have all the um, employees kind of dressed up for the kids. I think it's really, really exciting and it really does get them in the spirit of Christmas. So. The Chicago Transit Authority holiday train is in its 32nd year. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. He's a mean one, that Mr. Grinch, and deputies in north-central Kansas are doing something about it. The Phillips County Sheriff's Office says it captured the holiday foe thanks to Deputy K-9 Fritz. It also thanks the local high school band and other editors for their assistance. The Grinch is sentenced to Christmas spirit therapy. The Sheriff's Office says no Grinches were harmed in the making of this gag video. Christmas carols are a popular holiday tradition, but are they traditionally just for the holidays? According to historians at British charity English Heritage, the songs were meant to spark cheer and joy year-round. The Christmas carol is one of Britain's oldest traditions, sort of. Rather than singing from the same hymn sheet, carolers have been making it up along the way. Only a small fraction of medieval carols retain their original scores. And a lot of carols, which are staples today of carol services being sung at the moment, well, they've got loads of a variety of tunes that they could be sung to. The classic carol, While the Shepherds Watched, was often sung to a tune we now recognize as On Ilkley Moor. Historians at Charity English Heritage say Hark the Herald Angels Sing wasn't sung to the tune we know today. Composer Felix Mendelssohn wrote it in 1840. The harmony was only added in the 1960s. 
We three kings of Orient are, one in a taxi, one in a car, one in a scooter, bibbing his hooter, following old grandpa. But I still prefer Heart of the Herald with its truth about being giving a second birth. Turns out carols aren't only for Christmas. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And in health news, some say a handful of peanuts a day can help to enhance your cognitive function. It can also help to slow the aging process. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Peanuts are a nutritionally rich food that are often referred to as the fruit of longevity. They're delicious and a portion per day can help to prevent a variety of diseases. Let's take a look at how peanuts can benefit our bodies. Number one, enhance cognitive and memory function. A study was published in the Clinical Nutrition Journal. It found that regular consumption of peanuts and peanut butter may enhance memory function. It also enhances stress response in healthy young individuals. Number two, promotion of children's growth and development. Peanuts are rich in calcium, which supports bone formation. Additionally, the amino acids found in peanut proteins may enhance intelligence, memory, and cellular development. Number three, slowing down the aging process. The catechins in peanut skins possess antioxidant properties. These can defend against free radical damage and delay aging. Number four, alleviation of constipation. Peanuts are rich in fats and fiber, which can help to stimulate the gut and promote bowel movement. This can alleviate constipation. Number five, promotes cardiovascular health. The alpha-linolenic acid found in peanuts may help to break down cholesterol. This prevents its buildup in the blood vessels. It reduces the risk of coronary heart disease and stroke. Number six, increases breast milk production. The fatty acids and proteins abundant in peanuts offer nutritional benefits and boost energy. They aid in blood replenishment and lactation. This is particularly beneficial for women with insufficient milk supply. And just in closing, look for peanuts with an unblemished appearance. Avoid those with spots, cracks or moisture. Heavier peanuts are typically of better quality. When purchasing peanut products, opt for small packages that can be consumed in one serving. Once open, store leftovers in a sealed container in the refrigerator to prevent mold. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. The first confirmed American hostage death in Gaza. An elderly man allegedly murdered by the Hamas terror group. His wife still being kept prisoner. We have more on the Israel-Hamas war. U.S. law enforcement concerned about the rise of terror threats. See how many cases the FBI is investigating. We have multiple updates to the 2024 presidential elections, including former President Trump's Iowa strategy and a new memo by President Biden's campaign on the threat it says Trump poses to democracy. New York City Mayor Eric Adams faces a lawsuit. Plaintiffs argue that planned cuts to the city's public schools are illegal. Microsoft plans to end support for their Windows 10 operating system. This could result in hundreds of millions of PCs being disposed of. The LA Dodgers shocked the baseball world again with another record signing. But this one never even played in the big leagues.
This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. A major explosion in Glenville, New York last night after a truck carrying natural gas crashed into a bridge. Police say the trailer contained individual containers of compressed natural gas. Witnesses reported flames reaching 200 feet into the air. The driver reportedly told the police he did not see the low bridge warnings until it was too late. He was burned in the crash and was flown to a hospital near New York City. House Republicans say there is no doubt that President Biden was complicit in his son's global influence peddling scheme. They released new records showing email exchanges between the then vice president and his son's business associates. Biden allegedly sent and received emails with Eric Schwerin over 300 times during his time as vice president. Republicans say Schwerin was in charge of structuring shell companies to launder money around the world. Republicans concluded their report by alleging that President Biden's complicity in his son's business dealings is a dangerous abuse of his office. A White House spokesperson didn't directly comment on the allegations. But House Democrats say that Schwerin worked as Biden's financial advisor from 2009 to 2017 and helped him file his tax returns. The UN Secretary Security Council is expecting a vote today on a resolution calling for suspending the war between Israel and Hamas. The Security Council says a pause in military action is needed to bring humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip. Hamas has reportedly turned down an Israeli offer to stop fighting for one week in exchange for the release of 40 hostages. Meanwhile, an American hostage has died in Gaza. 73-year-old Gadi Haggai is the first U.S. citizen confirmed to have died while imprisoned by the Hamas terror group who allegedly killed him. Officials believe his wife is still being held hostage. In an escalating conflict, Israel has also been exchanging fire with the Hezbollah terrorist group in Lebanon. And U.S. law enforcement is on high alert as threats of terrorism rise at home. ABC News interviewed Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco Thursday as the Israel-Hamas war rages on. Monaco says the FBI investigated more than 1,800 reports of terrorism related to the war that began on October 7th. More than 100 investigations are open. The FBI is concerned about individual bad actors that could carry out an attack on their own. ABC's exclusive interview with Monaco will run this Sunday on This Week with George Stephanopoulos. There are also concerns that foreign terrorists could potentially slip across the southern border. Law enforcement has intercepted an increasing number of illegal border crossers on the U.S. terror watch list. Why is a small armed force in Yemen allowed to halt international trade? The Houthi rebels are holding a major shipping route captive. They're attacking commercial vessels in the Red Sea. Ships are forced to use the ancient route between Europe and Asia through Africa, around Africa, adding two weeks to their journey. For answers, I'm joined by former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Middle East Policy, Simone Ledeen. Simone, the combined military capability of the nations where the ships are from is dramatically greater than that of the Houthis. Why are these attacks allowed to continue? Well, uh, you, you hit on a very important point. Uh, yes, the number of ships is dramatically greater. However, if those ships are just sitting there and not taking decisive action, including responding, including um, in, in 
imposing costs on the Houthis, which they are not currently doing. Um, they're also not currently escorting ships that need security. Um, and as a result, global shipping has actually shifted and is now moving around the Cape of Good Hope, which is much farther and much more expensive than taking the shortcut uh, through the Red Sea. So what's the holdup here? Why isn't anything being done about this for the most part? Well, uh, the short answer to that question is weak leadership. Um, we need someone uh, in uh, our, our leadership, in our American political leadership, to actually decide to give the order and allow uh, our troops to do what they do, um, to allow our Navy to do what it does. Um, you know, a strong U.S. Navy and a decisive U.S. Navy is really the foundation of our U.S. national security. So the fact that we look weak and that we are weak, frankly, currently, is, is very disturbing uh, and, and very concerning for those of us who are watching this uh, play out. Now, Simone, Iran is behind the Houthis as well as the Hamas terror group in Gaza. But how much power does Iran exert over the Houthis? Uh, Great question. So yes, the Houthis are uh, one of the branches uh, of this malign Iranian uh, influence tree in the region. Um, and in fact, they've, you know, we are in the midst of an escalating regional uh, conflict, uh, which includes, as you mentioned, the Houthis and Hamas. Um, at this point, I think it's safe to say that Iran is pulling the strings. Iran supplies the ballistic missiles that the Houthis have been using. Um, they also have provided training. They've also provided logistical support. I mean, they are the force behind this. So I know a lot of people are talking about the Houthis versus Israel, the Houthis versus us. But in fact, it's Iran. It's, it's an Iranian regional conflict that continues to heat up. And we can come back to that in a bit. But talk about the Pentagon's recently unveiled plan to counter these attacks. Well, a couple of days ago, Secretary Austin announced uh, announced this big military operation, um, Prosperity Guardian. Uh, there was a lot of fanfare around this announcement, but in fact, what we've seen uh, play out is it's pretty quick collapse, uh, in my opinion. Uh, the French have already sort of mostly pulled out. They're just protecting French ships and really not uh, showing any interest in any other uh, of these big uh, of these big container ships that have been uh, previously passing through the Red Sea, and and as I said at the outset, the 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 other ships and the U.S. Navy ships um, should be actually sailing alongside um, of these big container ships to continue to support global trade and protect these ships from attacks by the Houthis, and they are not. They are idling. Um, and they are, uh, they are not actually coming up next to other ships that are idling and helping them out, even American, uh, American ships. And so that's why you see yeah. all uh, really global trade moving down Africa around the Cape of Good Hope to avoid the Red Sea, because there's absolutely no deterrence that's happening right now in the Red Sea area. I want to come back to Iran. Given what you said about their influence, what policies changes do you think could end these attacks that we're seeing in the Red Sea? Well, um, I think number one, uh, even a, it, this is no longer enough, but a bare minimum is to uh, 
put the Houthis back on the terrorist designation list. They are uh, a terrorist entity. Uh, the Trump administration, uh, which I was a part of, we designated the Houthis as a terrorist organization. And then one month into the Biden administration, they delisted the Houthis. And we've seen, uh, we've seen the results of that. But at this point, that's not going to be enough. Unfortunately, we've given them a couple of years to arm, to prepare, to plan um, with their Iranian overlords. And now we're at a point where we must take decisive action. Again, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to take decisive military action um, in order to provide yeah. deterrence. I'm not saying, you know, let's attack Iran. That's absolutely not um, what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is right now, nobody is afraid of the United States military and the United States Navy. And the reason that we know this, again, is because everybody, uh, all these ships that are trying to protect yeah. themselves and continue with global trade have taken a different route. So uh, that's really what needs to happen. Unfortunately, we've we've blocked ourselves into this box. And the only way out, we're going to have to shoot our way out, unfortunately. All right. Simone Ledeen, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Middle East Policy. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, a new report finds that President Biden is losing ground in Michigan and Nevada. What are the key issues holding back his re-election hopes? More reaction to the Colorado ruling that removes Trump from the ballot. What independent candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is saying and why. Insights from his campaign trail more in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Over the 2024 presidential election, we'll summarize the top headlines and today's most important info for you, starting with former President Trump's so-called blitz strategy in Iowa. On January 5th, Trump is scheduled to make back-to-back -back appearances in northern Iowa. One at 4 p.m. at Christian College near the state's western border. Then at 7.30, he's scheduled to make remarks about 150 miles northeast at the North Iowa Event Center. The two small-town events are scheduled just 10 days before the first-in-the-nation Iowa caucuses. Stand behind the scenes in Iowa, Trump is also benefiting from legions of volunteers who have been working to build relationships with voters. Trump is hoping for a big win in Iowa. He says this could compel other GOP candidates to drop out of the race, which he says would consolidate donors' contributions to a common cause, that is, beating President Biden. GOP presidential candidate Chris Christie will not be on Maine's primary ballot on March 5th. The Maine Superior Court on Thursday rejected the appeal from the former New Jersey governor. This was after hearing oral arguments the day before. Christie did not meet the December 1st deadline to submit the required 2,000 signatures from registered voters in Maine. The state's director of elections said Christie's petition only had 844 certified signatures. Authorities have indicted a New Hampshire man after he sent threatening texts to three presidential candidates. These reportedly include Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie. 30-year-old Tyler Anderson has now been charged with three counts of transmitting interstate threats. He faces up to five years in prison if convicted. The Biden campaign released a year-end memo calling Trump a threat to democracy. This comes just days after Trump was removed from the Colorado 2024 ballot for allegedly inciting an insurrection. 
That's even though Trump was never found guilty of or even charged with this crime. The memo states that Trump undermines America's democratic institutions and warns voters about the threat Trump allegedly poses. And Democratic presidential candidate Dean Phillips released a new campaign ad. It criticizes Biden for wanting to move Democrats' first primary election away from New Hampshire. For over a century, New Hampshire has held the first in the nation primary. And Granite Staters have faithfully carried out that grave responsibility, propelling the candidacies of some and ending the candidacies of others. Now, Joe Biden has ordered New Hampshire to step aside. That's not the New Hampshire way. Biden is supporting a bid to hold Democrats' first primaries in South Carolina instead. New Hampshire officials previously said they won't follow the request by the Democratic National Committee to let go of their state's first state privilege. The New Hampshire Secretary of State pointed out that today's society is quick to eliminate traditions and ignore them. New analysis found that Michigan and Nevada are shifting support towards Republicans. The Cook Political Report states that President Biden's standing has diminished in those states. The report says a number of key issues are hampering Biden's re-election hopes. For example, the ongoing Israel-Hamas conflict. This has been an especially divisive issue in Michigan. The state is home to the largest share of Arab Americans in the country. In Nevada, the report found that Biden is losing standing with Latino voters, especially younger ones. And to round up election headlines, the No Labels organization is floating the idea of a coalition government. That's if no candidate reaches the 270 electoral college votes necessary to win the White House. The scenario would apply if the third party ticket wins electoral votes and blocks a major, a major party nominee from winning the presidency outright. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says the Colorado ruling that takes Trump off the ballot makes America look like a banana republic. And he says if it's allowed to stand, everyone will be vulnerable to punishment for crimes they've never been convicted of. He's just one among a slew of presidential candidates expressing similar concerns. Earlier, we spoke with Epic Times reporter Jeff Lauterbach, who's been following RFK Jr.'s campaign closely for more insights. Jeff Lauterbach, RFK Jr. has said the removal of President Trump from the ballot troubles him. Tell us more about his response. Well, since the beginning, he, uh, RFK Jr. entered the race in April, and he's always said that he will not criticize President Trump or President Biden or attack them personally. He'll just talk about issues. And obviously right now, uh, it's widely uh, written about and talked about that RFK Jr. is trying to get on the ballot in all 50 states in Washington, D.C. So he considers uh, any, any move to keep him off the ballot and to keep any candidate off the ballot as voter suppression. So um, RFK Jr. came out on Twitter strongly criticizing the Colorado Supreme Court decision, hmm. hinting yeah. that, uh, or saying that it, it's, it's all about voter suppression and President Trump should be defeated fairly and should not be removed from the ballot. Right. Yeah, he's, he's emphasizing that he thinks really the voters should choose in this instance. Um, you've attended numerous RFK Jr. rallies and are constantly talking to his supporters. Do you think that his response is likely to resonate with supporters? Yeah, and from the beginning, what's interesting is most of these voters or attendees at these rallies, they're either supporters or they're just seeing what he's all about. They're uh, former Trump supporters. They're either former Trump supporters or 
they still support Trump, but are curious about RFK Jr. So there aren't many, it's hard to find a uh, President Biden supporter at an RFK event. And yeah, I think it resonates because people uh, consider RFK Jr. now mm. what uh, President Trump was in 2016 as an outsider trying to break in and make change. Right, and so for the people that you've spoken to there, are they concerned that if this Colorado ruling is held up, that he too could be at risk of being disqualified from the ballot? Well, that's an issue uh, they're gonna face, and they know that, the super PAC that's supporting Kennedy and the uh, RFK Jr. campaign. Obviously, uh, President Trump, if he gets the Republican nomination, which it appears he will, because he's ahead uh, substantially in most polls, he's on the ballot automatically. Normally, obviously, President Biden or whoever gets the Democrat nomination will be on the ballot. Uh, it's interesting because President Trump is facing something different because of these uh, this move to keep him off the ballot, tying it into uh, what the Fourteenth Amendment, I believe, and. As an independent, RFK Jr. has to get on all 50 states' ballots and D.C. by really tough guidelines uh, with signatures and uh, demands and requirements. Mm, and looking now also at the requirements for uh, getting on televised presidential debates, what are the criteria for independent presidential candidates? Well, essentially it's 15 percent in uh, polling and I believe it has to do with polls leading up to the debates, and these are national polls. Right now, uh, RFK Jr. is anywhere from 20 to 25 percent in most national polls. He, in, a, in a, a poll, I think it was a month ago, he was leading among all candidates with people 45 and under and leading among independent voters. So it just depends how he's polling leading up to the debate. But he, he, he welcomes the debate, he wants to be in the debate, and he knows that the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, they're gonna to try to keep him off the ballot and off the debate stage. All right, thank you so much, Jeff Lauterbach. Always great to speak with you. Coming up, the polarizing design of the Tesla Cybertruck is getting people talking, and it is apparently boosting the Tesla brand. Are potatoes vegetables? Well, maybe not in a few years. Find out which new category they could belong to. Stay tuned for more after the break here on NTD News. Former Chicago, Chicago alderman Ed Burke was convicted on 13 corruption charges t yesterday. The longest serving city council member in Chicago's history abused his power to win private law business from developers. The jury deliberated for 23 hours over four days before returning its verdict. 38 witnesses testified. The jury acquitted Burke on one count of conspiracy. Prosecutors said Burke used his political clout to pressure people into hiring his private property tax law firm. Defense attorney Joe Duffy said prosecutors presented a, quote, murky case. Burke left the Dirksen Federal Courthouse without comment. His longtime aide, Peter Andrews, was acquitted of all charges against him. He was accused of being Burke's accomplice. Sentencing is scheduled for June 19th. 
And New York City's teachers union is suing to block planned cuts to the city's public schools. The group says Mayor Eric Adams proposed budget reductions would weaken key education initiatives. Adams has argued that slashing city spending is necessary to offset the rising costs of New York's migrant crisis. The cuts would amount to $550 million. United Federation of Teachers filed a lawsuit in state court Thursday. The union accuses the mayor of exaggerating the city's fiscal woes. A state law prevents New York City from reducing school spending unless overall revenues decline. Adams has faced growing fallout over a multi-billion dollar budget cut announced last month. The mayor's poll numbers have dropped to the lowest point since taking office. Joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma to discuss the potential Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount merger. The CEOs of the two companies reportedly met to discuss a potential deal. Don, what could the impact of this deal be on consumers? Well, uh, for some, this will be beneficial for sure. Some analysts are saying that this merger potentially could create the largest movie studio in Hollywood and as well as uh, the third uh, largest by subscriber count uh, in terms of streaming business. Um, so each company's streaming service, uh, that's Paramount Plus and Max, could merge as a result of this merger. And just think about that. Uh, if you're a subscriber to Paramount or, or, or Max, uh, that, that could mean you know with just one app on your TV or your phone or your computer, you could watch a ton of things you could ever dream of. Uh, for example, live football, and probably you know every hit movie that you can think of could be on this one app. And it probably would be uh, cost efficient as well because you know think about it before if you were paying for two services now they're going to be merged into one and that one uh, subscription will probably be less than paying two individually um, and besides the consumer i think advertisers uh, could potentially benefit from this deal as well because you know, people who are on a budget right now, they're not going to pay for both. They're going to choose one that checks the most boxes for them. So if we have a merger, that means advertisers could reach out uh, it, for their ads, uh, both Paramount Plus and Max subscribers at the same time. And, you know, whenever advertisers get gets more reach, uh, they're always more happy uh, about that. And because, you know, the more uh, reach you provide them, you know, the, the the more products they potentially could sell in the end. Um, and with the, with the combined uh, subscription service as well, it could um, be a better competitor to the likes of Netflix because they'll be combi combining uh, their catalog of uh, content from both into one, and that could be on a better footing to you know, just compare, compare to the sheer amount that Netflix, Netflix already has. So you know, some potential benefits here. But what's been the reaction to it? Well, you know, despite all the benefits, um, potentially, uh, but some investors here seems like are not in favor of the idea uh, because after the news broke, shares of Warner Brothers Discovery actually went down. Uh, so here's the thing. Warner Bros. Discovery has somewhere around $45 billion in debt and Paramount as well has around $15 billion in debt. Uh, with the ongoing decline in the TV business, uh, you know, it's expected to make it harder for, their, for the firms to deal with the debt, um, which if they combine, the debt would also combine as well. And it's likely that further debt in addition will also be needed uh, to, uh, you know, for this merger of this size 
to go through. Uh, and of course, let's not mention the potential regulatory hurdles that, that this may come. We've already seen the challenges facing uh, Spirit Airlines and JetBlue. They're also trying, uh, trying to merge. And the timing of the deal coming right before a presidential election could actually increase re regulatory scrutiny on the company. Um, some analysts are saying that this is a play for survival, actually, uh, for the two companies. And, you know, if we look at mergers, uh, for example, Disney with Fox, I mean, afterwards, how profitable did Disney actually become? Because in the fourth quarter of this year, Disney Plus actually still lost uh, somewhere around more than a quarter billion dollars in terms of uh, profits. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, the worry here for investors is simply how profitable will this be? Don, what else do our viewers need to know, know about the business world today? Yeah, just a couple more updates here. Tesla's chief designer says the odd design of the Cybertruck will actually help boost the Tesla brand. He says that, you know, whether you love it or hate it, it's a conversation starter and it gets people talking about the brand. He says that Elon Musk was actually very involved on the design level as well as the engineering and manufacturing level. And the design is even, even getting the interest from people who have never owned a truck with some potential owners lining up for it at some Tesla showrooms. And IKEA says it's expecting delays and possible availability constraints for some of its products. This is a result of the ongoing attacks on ships in the Red Sea by Houthi militants. IKEA says that they're in close dialogue with their transportation partners to ensure the safety of the people that could potentially be impacted. And the company does not own any container vessels, so that means uh, shipments are managed by transportation partners. And at the same time, IKEA is also evaluating other supply routing options. And finally, Microsoft plans to end support for their Windows 10 operating systems by October 2025. And this could potentially result in about 240 million PCs being disposed of, potentially adding to landfill waste. This is according to Canalys Research. Microsoft will still plan to uh, provide secu security updates though for Windows 10 uh, until October 2028 for a fee that is. And the next operating system is anticipated to bring advanced AI technology to PCs, which you know could potentially be a boost for Microsoft uh, because it has been seeing a sluggish market as of right now. All right, thank you, Don. Thank you. The FDA is warning about fake Zempic, a drug for type two diabetes. The agency has found thousands of units of counterfeit versions of the drug. Five people have gotten sick in connection to the products, but so far, none of the cases have been serious. Investigators still don't know what ingredients are in the fake versions. They also warned that the needles that come with the fake injectable drug may not be sterile. The FDA says the best way to avoid these fakes is to only buy Ozempic through state-licensed pharmacies with a valid prescription. Ozempic has become widely popular due to its weight loss properties. That has led to increased demand, and people have been selling knockoff versions at salons and through social media. Check your children's toys. Authorities are issuing recalls for three children's dress-up play sets and toy eggs containing slime. The products, imported by Perch, exceed the federally allowable level of phthalates. 
These are chemicals commonly used in plastic products, but high levels may cause hormonal and other health problems. The affected products include the, little, the Liddy City Doctor playset, teacher purse, and little pretty stylist handbag. Pretext slime eggs are also part of the recall, and they also have levels of lead that exceed regulations. The items were sold online at Amazon and Walmart.com. Perch, Amazon, and Walmart are working to contact all known buyers directly. We all know a potato is a vegetable, right? Well, that fact we all know may change. The Wall Street Journal reports that a federal committee is considering changing the spuds classification and putting it in the same group as rice, carbs, and other grains. The debate comes as the Departments of Agriculture and Health and Human Services consider updates to national diet guidelines for 2025. These guidelines divide food into five groups, vegetables, grains, fruit, dairy, and protein. The guidelines help shape nutritional advice and school cafeteria menus. If potatoes get moved out of the veggie category, you'll no longer get credit toward eating your veggies when you eat them. Coming up, the baseball world is shocked again as the LA Dodgers make another record signing. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss. And anxious children can rest assured that Christmas is in safe hands of the US military. Hear more about a program that uses radar to track the sleigh of the magical present giver. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, a major happening in baseball last night. The Los Angeles Dodgers reportedly signed a Japanese star pitcher for $325 million. There were rumors he was meeting with New York teams. Are you surprised LA got him instead? I mean, not as surprised as how much money he got. This is a record contract for a pitcher, and he, that is Yoshinobu Yamamoto, has never even pitched in the big leagues, so it's very risky, and the Dodgers are usually very fiscally responsible. Now, the flip side of that is the flip side of that is that he's only 25 years old. Most free agents are like late 20s, early 30s, which is actually kind of getting older in baseball years. That's usually around the time players start to decline. Now, he absolutely dominated in Japan. He won like three straight MVP awards too. It did surprise me that the Yankees or Mets didn't get him. They were heavily rumored to get him. I, I'm guessing maybe having Shoei Otani already on the Dodgers probably helped sway him. And this is why Otani deferred all that money, so that the team could afford to surround him with other stars. Now, Dave, some breaking news this morning that Florida State University will be suing the ACC over the legality of their TV grant of rights, as well as the conference's exit fee. What's behind all this? Yeah, they clearly won out of the ACC. I think getting snubbed for the, from the playoffs was just their latest anger that they kind of blamed on the conference. You know, from the comments in the media, you get the feeling that they think that because the ACC isn't that strong, it hurts their reputation as a powerhouse program, which they are. Now, um, I will grant that, you know, Clemson having a down year, them not playing Notre Dame definitely hurt their strength of schedule. But I think that's a double-edged sword. You know, would they have gone undefeated in the Big Ten against the likes of Michigan, Ohio State, or Penn State, or the SEC's gauntlet that might include Alabama or Georgia? It would have been much more difficult. You know, they will play Georgia in a couple weeks in the Orange Bowl, so we'll see. Uh, but those would be difficult, and they've got their star quarterback injured. And even with that, had he not got injured, the committee said they would have taken him. 
Uh, so I think this already stems from them being reportedly unhappy with the ACC because they've fallen way behind the SEC and Big Ten in terms of revenue uh, handed out to their members. Uh, so I'm guessing this is the final straw. Now, Dave, they, like every other ACC school, had to sign over their TV broadcast rights to the conference for the duration of their deal till, yeah, 2036. To my understanding, this is legally ironclad. Do they have some legal ace up their sleeves or something? <laughs> I mean, they better. You know, like you said, no one has ever challenged these TV grant of rights. Uh, that's what binds every major conference together nowadays because it's been legally ironclad. No one's even attempted to. You can leave, but if your TV broadcast rights don't come with you, you provide no new revenue to your new conference. It still goes to the ACC for the next dozen years, like you said. Now, all those teams that recently left the Big 12 and the Pac-12, they timed their exit dates with the end of their TV deals. That's been the only known way to leave. Now, their exit fee is no small deal either, around $130 million. That used to be what you know they attempted to tie conferences together with, but it was a legal joke. Everybody just negotiated it down when they left. So I'm very curious to see how they do this. Uh, maybe it's worth a shot, though. All right. Thanks so much, as always, Dave. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dave. Next up, from the Arctic Circle to continental Europe to North America. How do Christmas traditions carry on in different cultures and countries? Next, we take a trip around the world to get a glimpse of rich and vibrant Christmas celebrations. In his hometown of Rovaniemi, Santa Claus made his own New Year's wish. My biggest wish is that people from all over the world could live together in peace. Sitting in his grotto on the Arctic Circle and reading letters from all over the world, Santa said everyone should focus on keeping children safe and happy. It's good to remember that friendship and Christmas spirit can be found in the same place, in all of our hearts. It's time to say to everybody, very Merry Christmas and happy and a better New Year. The bustling Santa Claus village never ceases to amaze visitors from around the world. One of them said he felt blessed with good luck. It was just amazing. I've never experienced Christmas like this anywhere. And this is just like I read and saw in the movies and like it exceeded all my expectations. And in the post office, dozens of Santa's elves were busy sorting hundreds of thousands of letters. They were from children asking for Christmas gifts. Each letter Santa sends back gets a special Christmas stamp. He asked us what our Christmas wish was. Oh, I asked him for a basketball and a basketball hoop. In one of Germany's oldest Christmas markets, mugs of mulled wine and traditional German sausages paved the way for Christmas cheer. Even the rainy weather couldn't put a damper on the festivities. This is a prerequisite for the Christmas spirit. Today is the kickoff meet for Christmas. Without this Christmas market, Christmas is almost non-existent for me. I'm very, very happy. I come here every year. I'm from Nuremberg, and I'm at the opening every year. You just can't do without it. But it is not all food and wine. Since 1948, the city has elected its own representation of the Christkin. 
ein jeder, der sich heute freut und morgen wieder plagt. Hört alle zu, was euch das Christkind sagt. The angel-like figure is believed to deliver Christmas gifts to children. This tradition has been passed down in southern Germany and other European countries. The origins of the Nuremberg Christmas market can go back to 1628 and likely even earlier. It has become a much-loved staple in Bavaria, with visitors coming from far and wide. Some two million visited in 2022. The market ends on Christmas Eve, when Germans traditionally celebrate Christmas. In early December, the Vatican lit up its famed Christmas tree in St. Peter's Square and unveiled this year's nativity scene. The installation features life-size terracotta statues. It's inspired by the first living nativity scene created by St. Francis 800 years ago. The 90-foot-tall spruce was decorated with thousands of nursery-grown Edelweiss, a white mountain flower native to the Alps. After the Christmas season, the tree will be sent to a company that will turn it into toys for children in need. In Italy, Rome switched on its Christmas tree lighting on top of the ancient Campidoglio Hill. To accompany the lighting of the decorations, a police marching band played several pieces, including the Italian national anthem. Couples didn't miss the chance to take a romantic selfie in front of the 50-foot gold-and-white Christmas tree. It was sponsored by French fashion house Dior and decorated with golden butterflies and perfume bottles. Despite a cost-of-living crisis impacting much of Europe, Romans say they still have plans to celebrate the holiday season. With what is happening in the world, we try to focus on our daily life. We try to pray for those who are believers and hope that things might improve. Personally, I would try to celebrate with my family, to have my loved ones as close as possible in such hard times. This year, I will be more sober in purchasing presents, because in the end, we always make the same presents and we don't even appreciate them. So I am pondering which gifts I will do. People in Prague gathered in the city's old town square to witness the lighting of the Christmas tree and to enjoy the festive atmosphere among the decorations. I am really looking forward to Christmas, meaning my family. I am looking forward to the tree, to the meal. This is everything that I am looking forward to. This 65-foot-tall spruce was brought in from the mountains in the north of the country. It's the dominating decoration on the old town square throughout December and early January. In the capital of Spain, the mayor of Madrid lit up the big tree of Seoul Square with thousands of people cheering. The Christmas tree was decorated by a staggering 12 million LED bulbs. It's beautiful. We always come here to see it. It's better this year than last year. It's great. I come from Central America. I saw it on social media and I thought it was something striking. And that's why I came here to see it. The lights will brighten up the city center every night during the holiday season until January 7th. Over to the Danish capital. Decorated Christmas trees, festive baubles, and hundreds of thousands of lights make Copenhagen sparkle ahead of Christmas. This year, some 28 miles of Christmas light chains have been used to bring festive cheer to the 180-year-old Tivoli amusement park. First of all, the lights, right? And here we are in the midst of it, with the music playing and the lights of it, and you can just 
sense that Christmas feeling? It's uh, very nice every year, so beautiful. And if you're not in the Christmas uh, mood, you will be it when you're here. A total of one million lights make the park's attractions and buildings glitter. More than 3,000 bulbs light up the facades, towers and domes of the Nim Hotel. A large artificial ice skating rink has been set up with the annual Christmas tree in the middle. Tivoli Christmas will end on the last day of December. Brussels Christmas Market added a delightful twist to the traditional Belgian treats of waffles and beer. Located near the newly renovated former stock exchange, the market is now home to a beer experience and open to visitors. The heart of the festivities was the Christmas tree in the Grand Place Square, surrounded by Baroque former guild halls and the City Hall. This iconic square comes alive each year with a festive sound and light display. People in Sofia, Bulgaria, posed for photos by decorated Christmas trees by the city's main church and cathedral. The capital of Bulgaria kicked off the festive season in early December. I'm more excited for the kids, not so much for me personally. Christmas is a great holiday at the end of the year. It ends a part of everyone's life and there are cheerful moments, gifts and surprises. The annual Christmas market in Zagreb opened its doors to locals and tourists alike. Oh, I love it. It's so beautiful. It's, uh, it's an experience like I've never had before. With its charming atmosphere and array of holiday delights, the market has become a must-visit destination during the festive season. It's beautiful. Um, I was just walking around and seeing all of the different stalls and food and um, drinks. It's really wonderful. The market was adorned with twinkling lights and colorful decorations, and the scent of mulled wine and roasted chestnuts filled the air. Visitors can stroll through the market's numerous stalls, which offer a variety of handmade crafts, Croatian food, and gifts. One of the highlights of the market is the ice park, where visitors can lace up their skates and glide across the ice. In the Russian Vologda region, Grandfather Frost, the eastern cousin of Santa Claus, celebrated his birthday amid the region's snow-covered forests in mid-November. Relatives of Grandfather Frost have come for the celebration, including characters from fairy tales and Grandfather Frosts from neighboring countries. How am I going to congratulate him? Sincerely, joyfully and cheerfully, this holiday is like this. I'll say a lot of warm things, and I brought Grandfather Frost a gift from my magic lake. But Grandfather Frost says the real gift is the joy on children's faces. I got a lot of gifts and a good mood. Also, all the children's eyes sparkle. For me, this is the most important and a big gift. There's fun and games for young visitors, including bowling, jump rope, darts, and magical creatures. I'm in a great mood because I'm here on the most important holiday in Russia. This is Grandfather Frost's birthday. Here, you find yourself in a fairy tale. After greeting visitors, Grandfather Frost's birthday celebrations ended with the lighting of the New Year's tree and festive fireworks. Kyiv marked St. Nicholas Day in early December. The mayor attended the opening ceremony and symbolically lit up the country's main Christmas tree. 
He said private patrons paid for it so that the Kyiv City Council could allocate more money to the army. Even during these difficult times, we have the opportunity to come and see our Christmas tree in our capital center. Maybe not to celebrate, but to feel the Christmas spirit despite everything, and we can still mark it in our country. I don't feel like it's Christmas yet, but today I bought a small Christmas tree and started decorating it. I try to do everything I can to feel the Christmas spirit. Ukrainian Christians traditionally celebrate Christmas on January 7th, along with other predominantly Orthodox countries like Russia. Ukraine's main Orthodox Church in May decided to switch to a calendar in which Christmas is celebrated on December 25th. People attending the opening said they supported the change away from Russia. We shouldn't have anything in common with Russia, even such important holidays such as St. Nicholas, and today is also Armed Forces Day. Nicholas and our soldiers hold the country together today. Finally, heading to the U.S., the Christmas Around the World exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry Chicago is a rich collection of holiday traditions from around the globe. The museum's annual celebration features a four-story, 50-foot-tall grand tree surrounded by over 50 trees and displays decorated by volunteers. What do you think about the Christmas tree behind you? I think it's massive and it's adorable. Every year it's beautiful and I've seen them many years but they're still enchanting and there's still wonder left in it. It's great, it's great. It's, it's, it's really exciting and how they really put a lot of thought and energy into decorating it and just the, the lengths that they go, you know, to, to really make everyone seem unique and special to the own country. In 1942, the exhibit used a single tree, newly decorated every day for 12 days, to represent the countries fighting alongside America during World War II. The tree was a wartime tribute to the Allies, but it also symbolized hope during uncertain times. By bringing together so many ethnic holiday customs, the display was a reminder that there is more to join us than divide us. As it really showcases how alike we all are, especially during these times where we might have some differences, but at the end of the day, these trees are a beautiful canvas to show how we all celebrate our traditions um, around the globe at various times of the year. The Christmas Around the World exhibit runs through January 7th. The U.S. military says it's keeping a close eye on Santa. The North American Aerospace Defense Command in Colorado, or NORAD, it says it monitors Santa and his sleigh from the moment he leaves the North Pole. So NORAD has 68 years experience tracking Santa. And I will tell you, Santa doesn't file a flight plan with NORAD, but the great part is that we, NORAD, are able to use the technology the same technology we use every single day to keep North America safe to track Santa on December 24th. So it starts with our North Warning System radars. As soon as Santa departs the North Pole, those radars pick him up. The tracking Santa tradition began in 1955 when an Air Force colonel fielded a call from a child who dialed the wrong number thinking she was calling Santa Claus. The fast-thinking colonel quickly assured the girl he was Santa and as more calls came in, he assigned a duty officer to keep answering. And it's so the tradition began. NORAD expects over a thousand volunteers to help answer calls this year. The operations center starts up at 4 a.m. on Christmas Eve and is open until midnight. Anyone can call 1-877-HI-NORAD to talk directly to NORAD staff members who will provide updates on Santa's exact location. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories on Monday.